Amen, amen. Good morning, Harvest family and friends. And yeah, please have a seat and turn in your Bibles if you want to get a head start to 1 Samuel chapter 27 and 29, which is where we are going to be today as we continue, as we wind down our Heart of the Matter uh, series. And I look out and I see uh, friends uh, new and friends older. And so whether this is your first time here at Harvest or you've been here many times, you are family here. And I hope and pray that you'll stay for our picnic afterwards. Even if you didn't bring anything to eat, to eat we got food, we'll share. Um, your family here would love to get to know you, hang out with you, spend some time with you as we really spend time together as a church family, digging into all that God has for us. We serve a God who is powerful. We serve a God who is mighty. We serve a God who is beautiful in every season and every circumstance. Amen. And we love to worship him here at Harvest in a variety of ways. We love to worship through singing. We love to worship through God's word. We love to worship through giving. And so thankful for your faithfulness in giving. And I want to encourage you and ask you to continue to do that. If this is not your church home, uh, please don't feel compelled to give. But if Harvest is your church home, please give and give generously, whether in the box in the back with a check or cash or whether online. And uh, praise God that we, God has provided faithfully so far this year that we are above budget by, by his grace. And praise God. But, you know, it's the last month of our fiscal year. We're behind a little bit as you look in the bulletin. So if, if you really would pray and see if, if God might use you to really advance his kingdom through giving, that would be awesome. And we look forward to sharing next week some ways, excitingly, that God is calling us to step out in faith as a church. He's laid some stuff out in front of us. Can't wait. We're going to have a family chat at the end of service next week as we get ready to go into a new ministry year. Jesus builds his church um, in, in every way, and, um, and we're so thankful for that. Um, we serve a faithful God, and we've seen it over and over again, and prayer is powerful. Amen. We prayed last week for two major surgeries in our church, and I want you to know that this week uh, that they both went successfully, praise God. It doesn't always happen that way, but we trust God's sovereignty in that. You'll see a picture behind me of, of a couple of our friends, right? And if you look at this, God is faithful to all generations, amen? So we literally have our youngest, newest member of our church family, Caleb Baker, and one of our more, well, mature members um, of our church family, Bruce Williams. Um, and so Caleb, little Caleb has heart surgery this past week, just a few days after he was born, but the blockage is gone. He's recovering well. He's up at Hopkins and hopefully be back home, hopefully sometime within this week. So please keep Thomas and Cindy in your prayers and that whole family. And Bruce is, Bruce is recovering well. Angie's right here. I'm looking over at Angie right now, his wife. And, and he had some surgery, major back surgery done. The old parts were taken out. The new ones were put in. Sort of like the gospel, right? Old becomes new. And, um, and he, there were a couple hurdles, a couple complications, some blood clots developed, but this additional surgery was had there up at Mercy, and he's now in a nursing home um, in Severna Park, where he'll be for the next three or four weeks recovering, and so just thankful for that. But I just want you to know that um, as we get ready to dive into what the text has for us, we saw a little representation of it this week, and Angie, I want you to know that you and Bruce are some of my heroes, literally. Um, they don't have an easy life. I would encourage you guys all to get to know them. There are many, many hurdles and obstacles in a variety of fashions in their life, but rarely will you ever hear them complain. And, um, and always, if you're around Angie, she'll just be, pray for this, pray for this. God's moving, God's working. Hey, we got the surgery, but God's got it. Please do this. And so even in the midst of major back surgery, there was a heart perspective and there was a posture of a heart that said, even as blood clots were developed, that's hard, please pray. But praise God that they were found in the hospital, right? And not the nursing home. Oh, Bruce is having, a, it's, it's a painful recovery. Praise God, God opened the door for our nursing home 10 minutes from our house when we thought he might be in Timbuktu, right? And so even amidst the difficulties of life, there are reasons to praise. And it's all about the perspective 
of our heart because the struggle is real, right? It's a struggle is real in everyday life. And, and, and I know as we walked into this room and I, I know just a portion of you and some things that are going on, I just know that there's a heaviness in many hearts this morning for a lot of different reasons. But I just know that the struggle is very, very real. And so we want to recognize and understand that reality. So we're not going to hide from that. We're going to acknowledge that. But we're going to choose to lean into that as we're going to see the text lead us today. We're going to see that the hope is real, even as the struggle is real, because our Savior is real. Amen? And that we don't just sing about the hope that we have. The hope has a name. His name is Jesus. We need to believe that, and we need to anchor in that. But we're all fleshly human beings, and humanity reveals our susceptibility to the vulnerability of sin as we face adversity, right? We're going to see that in the text in 1 Samuel 27 and 29. We're going to see David, a man after God's own heart, give in to our fleshly susceptibility to turn away from God when we get tired of the struggle, to try to begin to take things into our own hands when we're tired of waiting on God to do what we hope and pray for him to do it in his hands. We're going to see David struggle with that. David's going to show us what not to do today, but we're also going to see, even as David shows us what not to do, we're going to see God still come through because that's the gospel, because God's grace is not predicated on whether we are behaving obediently or disobedient. He lavishes it unconditionally regardless of our humanity. Amen. Praise God for that. Victory in our adversity comes as we shift our circumstances, as I've seen Angie do so vividly this week. We shift our perspective from our circumstances to Christ in the middle of our circumstances. What are we allowing to drive our perspective, the external circumstances of our life, or the eternal Christ who rules over all of our life? That's at the heart of the message today. That's at the heart of the text today. That's the heart of what God wants to communicate today. And he's He's taken me to the mat with that this week in my own heart. The big idea for today, you'll see it on your notes and you'll see it on the screen, is this. That hope in my struggle, and the struggle is real. It's real for all of us this morning. The details might be different. The struggle is real. Comes as I anchor in my Savior. Hope in my struggle comes as I anchor in my Savior. And if you're not feeling very hopeful this morning, I just want you to know that you are loved here. You're welcome here as you are. I'm thankful that you are here or joining us in person or online. And God's going to meet you today. My prayer is that you open your heart to allow him to meet you in your mess. That you bring your mess and you allow God to change you and transform you. All of us need to meet with Jesus today. I know my heart does because I'm struggling with some things. I think if we're really real, all of us in this room are struggling with, struggling with some things. They might be big things, they might be little things, but we're all struggling with things, and we need Jesus. I pray that we would change the perspective of our hearts and our minds, that Jesus would, and we would change where we are anchoring our hope. Because at the reality, our hope is not based on the, at the end of the day, the hope is not based on our, the external circumstances of our life, but it's on the internal condition of our hearts and a love of God that nothing and no one can take away from us. We're going to see that in the text today. Hope is here. I pray that you would trust God and receive it. I pray that you would choose to rest in it and believe it and act on it. Let's go to the word in prayer. Father, I'm so thankful for who you are. I'm so thankful for the power of the gospel in our lives. God, and we're going to see that the struggle is real today, but man, we're going to see today that the Savior is real and that you are sovereign, and that you reign. Thank you for embracing us in our mess. Thank you for loving us when we turn away from you. Thank you for pursuing us when we don't want anything to do with you. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness to us when we are not faithful to you. God, we don't deserve you. 
But man, we are so thankful for you. Father, there are a lot of hurting hearts in this room right now. There are a lot of hurting hearts watching online, listening later. And God, I pray that you would meet each and every one of us where we are with the transformational power of the gospel and the hope of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would silence me and that Holy Spirit, you would flow and that you would meet each individual exactly where they are, that you would encourage, that you would exhort, that you would convict, that you would compel, that you would save, that you would bring salvation to this place today, that you would manifest your presence here today. Oh God, oh God, we need you and we love you. Move in our hearts right now. We cry and we pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel. We're going to look at two chapters today, 1 Samuel 27, 29. We, if you're joining us for the first time or recently, we're, we're journeying this summer, this spring, all the way through the book of 1 Samuel. We love God's word here. We want to teach it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so we're coming near the end of, of 1 Samuel, um, and we're continuing the journey today. Look with me, if you would, at 1 Samuel chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape in the land of the Philistines. And then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. And so David arose, and he went over, and he and the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man and with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel. Nabal's widow. And when it was told to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. And now David and his men went up and made raids against the Gishroites, the Gizites, and Amalekites, for those were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish said, where have you made a raid today? David would said against Nagab of Judah, or against Nagab of the Jehermelites. Or against Negev, the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people of Israel. Therefore, therefore, he shall always be my servant. And in those days, chapter 28, the Philistines gathered the forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. This is the word of the Lord. The struggle is real. David is struggling. We see it in verse 1. He is literally struggling in his heart. There is a wrestling going on in his heart. This is why the series is called The Heart of the Matter, and I don't know where your heart is at today, but I want you to know that David can relate. He can relate to the hurting and the broken, the wandering, the worn out, the weary, the anxious. David is wrestling with all of those things in his heart. 
our feelings swing. We've seen David be like, God, I'm all in. And now he's like turning away from God as we're going to go into in a second, right? But even as our situations come and go, as the storms of life rage and as the waves rise and as they fall, there is hope. The author of Hebrews teaches us this because Hebrews 6.19, the author of Hebrews says this, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as our forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have this. What is this? It's the gospel. It's Jesus as a sure and steady, steadfast anchor of my soul providing hope. Now, if you think about anchors, many of you are in the Coast Guard or the Navy, so you're way more familiar with boats than I am, but an anchor doesn't stop at surface level, does it, or it doesn't do its job, right? It's weighted so that in the storms of life, it drops deep down and holds the ship in place. In the same way, the hope of the gospel cannot just be a surface level thing, or else when you get into a storm, and you're either in a storm right now, or you're about to walk into one, or you're coming out of one, but when the winds rage, if your hope is just surface level as you cling to the gospel, maybe you sing a few songs, and you listen to Christian radio, you read your Bible every once, every five years, or something like that, and you think you're a Christian, or you say it, but when the storm comes, you run away, because it's just on a surface level, the anchor's not doing its job. You're not really anchored because by definition, an anchor goes below the surface, down deep into your soul, that it transforms you, that it drives you, that it holds you fast as the winds and the waves. And in scripture, Paul uses many metaphors in the New Testament talking about spiritual maturity and anchoring, holding steadfast. And if you're immature in Christ, you will get tossed to and fro by the wind and the waves. But as we're going to see David, a man after God's own heart is getting tossed and turned right now. And so if that's you tossing and turning, Don't beat yourself up too much or carry guilt. Repent of it and turn back and experience God's grace today. How do we have hope in our struggle? We're going to look at two anchors for our soul today, right out of this text that I pray that we can apply today and every day. The first hope in my struggle is this, because the struggle is real, but hope is real too, is this. I need to anchor my heart in God's promises. I need to anchor my heart in God's promises, His Word. Now, if a little bit of a refresher, two weeks ago, we looked at chapters 26 and 28. And so David coming out of this, what precedes, if you hop your eyes up a couple verses in the tail end of 26, is that David had just had this opportunity for the second time to kill Saul. Saul is pursuing David. Saul wants to kill David. David's like, what have I done? And Saul's like, well, you're a threat to my throne, to my legacy, to my kingdom, and so I need to take you out. But Saul, David refused to take Saul out, and even so much so is going when he talks to Saul about it. He says, behold, this is David talking, verse 24 of 20, chapter 26, a couple of verses above 27. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, David talking to Saul, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. David, in that moment, was like, I'm all in on God. I'm trusting God. God's going to be delivering. I don't have to take it into my own hands. He's like coming out of church service, coming out of smoke. I had a great quiet time. I'm ready to take on the world. You might feel that way. And then you get into work and life smacks you in the face, right? And you're like, oh no. And all of a sudden that, that time you had with God was drifting and all, you feel this tug in your heart to try to grab control. I have to do it. I have to figure this out. I have to find money. I have to. And the center of your heart is anchored in who? You. You're the subject. No longer, you're pushing God out of the center of your life. David gets that literally two verses ahead. And now in 27, he's like, then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day at the hand of Saul. Wait a minute. David, just a second ago, had claimed the reality that God was going to deliver him from Saul. And now two verses later, he's saying, I'm going to die because he's flip-flopping. 
And how many of us do that? So much so that he's going to cause him to literally leave the promised land of God to seek refuge in the land of the enemy of God, the Philistines. Why would I go to the mind? Because I'm operating in my flesh. He's literally going to leave the promised land of God. Man, it reveals our own susceptibility and vulnerability to acting foolishly, doesn't it? In the storms, when the stress comes, when the hardships rage, when we take our eyes off of Jesus and begin to put them on ourselves. Now get this, by 27.1, David has been on the run for about seven years. That's a long time, right? Long time or a little bit? Long time. He's worn out. He's had to fight for his life. He's had to leave his family behind. He's picked up additional family on the road, but he left his first wife on the run. He had her taken away from him. He's had to dodge. Different. He left his best friend. He left his home. He left the promises in so many ways. He had to leave the land that God had given him because Saul had driven him out. He had paid the price, and he was like, I'm in, I'm in. And then there just hit a wall where he's like, I'm done. And maybe that's you. I'm living faithfully for God. I've endured this burden for so long. God, I'm in. But now, you know, I hit my time limit. I'm done. God, you haven't done what I think you told me you were going to do, and I'm putting you on my timetable, and I've determined that, God, your time is it and done, and I'm back in control. And maybe that's you. David gets the exhausted heart, the grieving heart, the worn out heart, the anxious heart. And maybe you're enduring a difficult, enduring health situation for you or a family member this morning. David gets you. Maybe there's a relationship in your life that has been strained or broken and it's breaking your heart and it's just that you're at the end of your rope with it. David gets you too. Maybe you don't understand why you're having to do certain things, why you're on the run. David, all the time when he confronts, why are you chasing me, Saul? This doesn't make sense. Remember, David's already been anointed as king to be the next. Maybe you're grieving. David's grieving. Maybe you have a financial burden that is threatening to crush you. A longing of your heart that is unmet. Carrying guilt or grief just broken by the devastation in your life or in the lives of those around you, uncertainty in your future, safety that is on a human level up in the air. David gets all of that. His heart, in verse 1, is overwhelmed, it's hurting, and it's fledgling. Where's your heart this morning? David's heart swings from highs to lows. It's called being normal. It's called being human, right? That's why scripture teaches us that we need to renew our minds over and over. Jeremiah, the prophet, says that the heart is deceitful above all things. David, his own heart, in verse 1, is deceiving him. David, a man after God's own heart, is having his heart deceived. And if David is vulnerable to that, guess who else is? Me. And you and I are too. The big lesson here is that the attitude of my heart drives the actions of my life. The attitude of David's heart, he said in his heart, and that's going to then drive his actions. Because I don't trust God anymore, I must run to the enemies of God who I will put my trust in. Because I am tired of waiting on God, I am now going to actively take into my, my situation into my own hands because I think I'm better than God. The attitude of David's heart drives the actions of his life, and the same is true for you, and the same is true for me. Where's your heart at right now? David's worried for his personal safety, and not just him, 
He's got two wives. That's a different sermon for a different day. That's not God's best, okay? He's got men who all have families to 600 of them. He is feeling the weight of the responsibility for a couple thousand people who are all looking at him and going, David, we're tired and we're worn out. The, ru- the food's running out. I don't know where I'm going to eat tomorrow. Where's the money going to come from? Small business owners, you get me on this? Right? You run a corporation, you run a, you're a leader in the military, people are looking at to you for answers that you don't have, and you feel the weight. Of, I get that. From a family level, from a church level, you feel the weight of caring for people. Where are the resources going to come from? I don't know. God help. You begin to go, I got to do something. David gets you, small business owner. He gets you, leader. He gets the weight But our earthly responsibility must drive us to godly dependency because the first person you and I need to lead is ourselves. We need to lead our own heart to the cross, to the gospel. The first person that you and I need to preach the gospel to is ourselves. And our heart needs to hear it day in and day out, minute by minute, because our heart's deceitful. Our heart will wander. Where is your heart right now? In our fleshly humanity, David demonstrates our proclivity to respond self-destructively to adversity. How are you responding to the adversity in your life? You will face trials and tribulations. Jesus' promises us that. The Christian life is not a hard one. Count the cost. You can't find hope outside of Jesus. When you're not thinking clearly, when you're not living biblically, you will act foolishly. That's what David is doing right here. Where are you? Where are you? Because if you're not clinging to the hope of the gospel, if you're not fighting, and it is a spiritual battle, which is why you need to put on your armor, and the belt of truth is one of the armor in Ephesians 6. Because if you're not clinging and putting that on, it is an active, everyday process. Read Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, 10 through 20. You can stand against the adversary, but you need to put on the armor. It's available to you, but if you don't put on that belt of truth, if you don't anchor your hope in the promises and the word of God, you will begin to believe the lies because our adversary, Satan, is a deceiver. David's believing lies here. Well, what are some lies that David's believing in this text? What are some lies that you and I often find ourselves susceptible to and vulnerable to and believe, frankly, in our life? What lies might you be believing in your life right now? Here are a couple of them right here. Lies you and I often believe in the struggle. The first one is this. God's promises can't and or won't hold up to be true for me. Verse 1. Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. No, he won't. Remember back several chapters ago, who was anointed as the next king of, of, of Israel? David. In order for David to be king, what has to happen? Saul has to die. God has promised David that he will be king. But now, David is believing that he is going to die at the hands of Saul before he can be king. He is not, he's choosing to pull up his anchor out of that promise that God gave him very, very clearly. God never gave him a timetable, and I get it. Seven years is a long time to be on the run, right? Maybe God made you a promise and you've been waiting seven minutes and you're like, come on, God, it's been a while yet, right? Seven months, seven years. God's timing is not always our timing, but God's timing is always the best timing, amen? 
We need to anchor in that. We need to trust it. David's like, now I will perish. No, he won't. He won't perish at the hand of Saul. But he's believing that lie. What promises of God are you not believing? God will provide for your needs, friends. He promises that. He won't provide always for your wants. He won't necessarily do it on your timetable. It might not be in the way that you had planned. You might not have the job that you want. You might not drive the car that your friend has. You might not have the amount in your bank account that your parents had, but he will provide for your needs, amen? He knows you, he loves you, he sees you, and he's providing for you. He might not give you extra, but he will always give you enough because he is always enough. Read Matthew chapter six, the back portion of that. He knows what a sparrow needs. He knows what other living things need. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows what you need. And as you seek first the kingdom of God, everything else will be given to you. The priority, right? It goes back to what am I anchoring my heart in? So what promises of God are you? Where is God? He's not here. Yes, he is. He promised he's never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Secondly, the lie I often believe is this. God's not enough for me. Look at the text. Still in verse one, David then says, in his heart, remember, it's a battle for your heart. God cares primarily about your heart. After he says, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul, he goes, there's nothing better for me. Yes, there is. God is better for you, right? There's nothing better for me, so I have to. I'm forced to go to my enemy. I'm forced to go to the enemy of God. I'm forced to look to the world for the hope that God is so freely offering me and giving me. Friends, what, where in your life are you believing the lie that there is nothing better? Said another way, that God is not enough for me. That God is not enough for me. He's enough, isn't he? He's sufficient. And you might be on that journey to figure it out, and that's okay. Trust me, there are days that I wonder, where is that extra $500 for this repair going to come from, right? When is my dad going to get better? He might not. He probably won't. But God's still enough. Where is fill in your blank right now? And we see the wrestling in David's own heart, right? Because David, just a few short months, if not years ago, wrote these own words with his own pen in Psalm 63.3 while he's on the run. He says this. He says, because your love is better than life, my lips will praise you. He's talking about God. So in one moment, he's going, God, your love is better than life. Like, there's nothing better than you, God. And in this moment, he's like, there's nothing better for me than to go to the Philistines. Those two don't match up, do they? But it's very real for you and I, right? We can sit in a worship service, raise our hands, and go, God, you're above it all. God, you're my hope. And then Tuesday, when your car breaks down and you don't have enough money for that $1,000 bill, you're like, God, where are you? It's okay to ask that, but it's a continual tension of your heart to trust in God. Where in your life are you believing that God is not enough for you? Matthew chapter 5, in the Beatitudes, Jesus he says that we will only be filled when we pursue the righteousness of God. Only then, what are you pursuing? The third lie that we often believe is, I must turn to the world for help. When your back's against the wall, 
He goes, there is nothing better for me, we're still in verse one, that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. There's nothing better for me than to turn to the adversary of God to get help because, well, God's silent right now. Those people that I've continually battled and I've killed and that want to destroy me, want to destroy God. Where in your mind are you believing the lie that you need to turn to for help? Turn to the world for help. David so much so is going back to Gath. And if you remember several chapters ago when David first started out on the run, you know where he first went in the Philistine land? Gath. You know what? He was in so much danger there. You know what he had to do? He had to act insane to escape. And he's like, he's blinded by the brokenness in his life that he's returning to the dangerous place that he found himself in, in the foes of God in the world, right? He's going back to something he knows in his heart is not good for him. In fact, he knows in his heart is very bad for him. Don't you and I do that? The interesting word in this for me is escape that I should escape. Friends, you can never outrun your trouble. It will just follow you wherever you go. You got to confront it. You got to deal with it. You got to bring it to the cross. It'll follow you from Maryland to Michigan to wherever, to Malaysia. Your heart issues just won't go away when you change geography, will they? Trust me, I've tried. It didn't work. Whatever you're burying, whatever you're hiding, whatever you're running from, whatever you're trying to not deal with, you need to openly bring to the foot of the cross. And frankly, I would encourage you to help, get help from others. Your commu- lean into biblical community and go help. Because our humanity, our depravity should drive us to dependency. But how often do we try to hide? David's trying to hide. How often? And you're like, I would never go to the Philistines. This is sort of like going, I'm going to go to Al-Qaeda and seek refuge there, right? None of us would ever do that. But how many of us turn back to a pill that we know is not good for us? Because we're looking to escape. Or a bottle. Or we look at images on a computer screen or a phone to help take the edge off. Or we break out the credit card and we max it again because that is something that helps me to escape from the heart issues that I'm trying to run from that I'm not really dealing with because Jesus is the only hope for them. I don't want to handle my grief. I don't want to process it. I'm just going to go on a bender. I'm going to go on a trip and that will make everything. Some of these things do help in some ways. but they never help in the eternal way where you're really seeking and needing the help. Where in your life are you turning to the world for help when ultimately only Jesus will help? The struggle is real, the hope is real, but you have to turn to the right deliverer because when you turn to the world for help, it will just captivate you and it will destroy you. And even good things can become idolatrous things as Paul Tripp says, when they become ruling things. I'm going to bury myself in work. I'm going to bury myself in my family. And I'm going to convince myself for all the right reasons. But what you're really doing is running. Because you don't want to deal with the work in your heart that needs help. Where are you running from God? As opposed to running to God. 
The fourth lie we often believe is I must save myself. Look at verse one. Then Saul will despair. This is David talking to his own heart. He's, you, know, who, you know who the person you talk to the most in the world is, right? Yourself. Some, some of you talk more than others, but we all talk to ourselves more than. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. David's like, I got this plan. Look, some of you are great strategic planners, and that's awesome, but you're still horrible saviors. Your plan will never save you. You can't work hard enough. You can't earn more. You can't get a better reputation. You can't do enough good to save your heart and your soul. Only God can do that. Where are you trying to save yourself right now? You come up with these plans. David did. You can't clean yourself up. You can't buy yourself out of this trouble. You try. But then this funny thing happens when you're living in sin, as Pastor Andrew so, did so well preaching a couple weeks ago. He, t- he talked about the snowball effect of sin. You have to continue to sin to keep the cover story up, right? David lived for a year and four months, this text says, and down in verse 7, with the Philistines. He is running from God, David is. And maybe you've been running from God for a year and a half too. Come home today. But in order to keep up his cover, look at what he has to do. He makes raids because he's bored. And he raids actual adversaries of the Philistines. And he kills all the women. He kills all the people so there would be no witnesses. And he goes back to the king of the Philistines and he lies. He tells him that he's invading people of Judah. He tells him that he's invading Israelites. He tells him that he's killing Israelites. So then it gains him clouts with the king of the Philistines. He's like, obviously, he's going to be hated by his own people, so I can trust David. David is flat out lying. He is flat out sinning. He is wrong. And he's killing people to leave no witnesses to continue the cover story. Man, if you are living in sin and you have to compound it and compound it and compound it, stop, turn, repent today, please. It's devastating, amen? When you believe that you have to save yourself, you often find, out, find yourself sinning in, in ways that you never thought you would. He's breaking the Ten Commandments. He's breaking the like. Where are you sinning in an effort to save yourself today? You're like, how do I do this? How do I gain God's favor? How do I experience the promises that God has for me? Well, if you go back to another Old Testament story in Joshua chapter 1, when Joshua understands that the, the reality of the difficulty of the situation of life, he understands hardship. He understands what it's like to grieve as he's grieving the loss of his mentor Moses. He understands what it's like to be in literal slavery as he was in slavery in Egypt. And he understands what it's like to wander for 40 years in the desert, not knowing where your meal is going to come from tomorrow, not knowing where water is going to come from and watching God do a miraculous thing. Joshua understands what it's like to be, have to take a stand when a whole nation says, we can't go into that land because they're giants. And he, him and Caleb said, yes, we can because our God says so. And in this moment where Joshua needs to take the lead, where it's time for him to literally stand up and step out for the Lord of faith, this is the Lord's exhortation to Joshua. He says this in Joshua 1, 7 through 9. He says, only be strong and very courageous. 
being careful to do all according to the law. You see, anchoring in the promises of God takes strength and courage that can only come from God. It's not easy to do not just some of the law, but all of the law, because it's a command, it's not optional. Don't turn from it to the right or the left, and then you will have good success wherever you go. Success doesn't come, you're not like, I got the, I got the end result, and now God, I'll follow you. Success comes as you choose to obey God. God defines the results, and it's biblical success, it's not our success. Verse 8, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night. That's anchoring over and over, not just once a week in Sunday school or church or small group, once a month at church. I'm going to meditate it day and night, all day long. I will re-anchor my mind, re-anchor my heart in the promises of God and the word of God, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Are you doing that, friends? So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Not just hear it, but do it, Right? Not just know it intellectually, but obey it, be transformed by it, allow it to drive you. For then, it's a a conditional promise. For then, you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened, and don't be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That might be cool for Joshua, because he'd already seen God do amazing things. Great. God's giving him... This instruction, he says, everywhere you step, you'll be given. But you know what? When you take, you, in order to take a step, you actually have to step out in faith. Joshua is about to enter into an unknown land that he did not know other than God would promise to give him the land. He didn't know he was about to face an immovable obstacle in a river that he had no way over but God, part of the Jordan River. He had no idea he was about to face a, a wall that was almost impenetrable by man, because it was. But God made it fall down. He had no idea he was about to face a battle where his time was running out. But God literally made the sun stand still. Obstacles laid ahead, but he had to shift his focus off of the obstacle and onto the overcomer on a daily basis. And then he would experience the promise. God's promise in this moment is conditional. And it's also unconditional. If you think about it on a macro and a micro level, God will fulfill his promises. That means he will build his church in a New Testament language and he will build his nation in an Old Testament language. He will fulfill that on a macro promise, right? He's going to do it. But on a micro level, meaning on you personally, it means you might not get to experience it if you choose not to obey him. Ask the first generation of Israelites that died in the wilderness because of their disobedience when their next generation got to go into the promised land. He fulfilled his promise to the country and to the nation. He will build his church. But this individual local church might not exist if we don't obey the God. Your family might not experience the promises of God if you do not choose to obey him and follow him. That's why he told Esther, right, for such a time as this, if you do not step out in faith, guess what will happen? God will find another way to provide, but you and your family might perish, right? God will save his people But if you are living in disobedience, if you are not acting in obedience, you might not get to experience the blessing and the promise personally. Does that make sense? It's all throughout Scripture. You can't save yourself. Don't depart from the book of the law to the right or left. Meditate on it day and night. Let it be your anchor for your soul. Are you allowing God's word to be your anchor? And fifth and finally, earthly success, the lie that we often believe, earthly success is the ultimate remedy for me. Some of us go, if we just work a little harder, it'll be okay. If I, if I get a promotion, I'll be okay. If I make a little more money, I'll be okay. If I get that car, my life will be happier and it will be better, right? 
Well, David, in 28, gets a promotion. Achish said, hey, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life because he had built his reputation on lies, David had. He had, sure, he had curried favor with his earthly king, but it's going to do no good for him in eternity. He gained earthly success. His reputation in the pagan world skyrocketed. Good for him. And maybe your focus is on becoming the next Fortune 500 CEO. Awesome. If you do that in a biblical way, great. But where's your heart? Are you building your career on obeying the word or are you compromising the word in order to build your career? One thing will last, the other one won't. What's your anchor? If I get generational wealth, it will improve my life. It might in the short term, but as Jesus said, what does it, what does it help you to gain the world but lose your what? Soul. If you can make money, make it. But make sure your heart is to use it to advance the kingdom of God, to give generously to his church, to advance his kingdom. Because everything we have is from God and for God. In the struggles of life that are very real, always anchor in these realities, as we see in this text. God's best for me, number one, never resides outside of God's word to me. Never resides outside of God's promises to me. Never, ever, ever. Number two, God's best for me never requires me to sin. Never requires me to sin. And number three, God's best for me never fails me. Friends, where are you lying to yourself right now? And where are you lying to others? Where are you lying, allowing the lies of Satan to cloud your judgment? Where do you need to change your perspective? To re-anchor your heart in the promises of God as opposed to running to the world? Because hope in my struggle comes as I anchor in my Savior not as I anchor in my situation or not as I anchor in the world. As you do a heart checkup in your, ho- in your own heart, ask yourself these questions this week. In my struggle, am I seeking to exalt God in my situation more than I am seeking to escape my situation? Sometimes God allows you to be in the struggle so that he will be most exalted in that struggle in your life and the lives of those around you. Don't, just necess- don't run from the struggle to run from the struggle. Run to your Savior in the struggle and allow him to do the sanctifying work he wants. What does that mean? It means I heard a story this week of somebody whose life is, is a struggle, and they said, hey, but my UPS driver this week told me that he's praying for me, and I'm going to invite him to church because he knows what's going on. Awesome. God's working, right? And what if God allowed the struggle to allow that UPS driver to come to know him? Awesome. It's hard, but God's always working. Ask yourself this, in my struggle, am I focused more on the internal condition of my heart or the external circumstances of my life? What matters more to you? What matters more? Thirdly, ask yourself in my heart, am I obeying the word of God as I seek help from God in my struggle or am I turning to the world for help? Where are you running for your escape? Where are you turning to for help? One will save you, the other will destroy you. It might be a slow death, but it will be a death. Where are you turning to right now? Who are you turning to? The second anchor for our heart is this. After we anchor my heart in God's promises, we need to anchor my mind in God's grace. Turn with me, if you would, to chapter 29. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped at the spring in Jezreel as the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on the rear with Achish. 
the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said, as the commander of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years since he deserted, he's deserted to me? I have found no fault in him this, to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us in the battle, lest the battle he become an adversary to us. For how, how could this fellow reconcile to himself to his Lord? Would, he not, would it not be with the heads of the men there? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another and dances? Saul is struck down as thousands and David is ten thousands. And then Achish called David and said to him, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and met with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, but what have I done? And what have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. That's ironic. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go with us into the battle. And now then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came down with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So basically they're on this hill ready for battle and, and David's like, I'm ready to go when he's ready to fight. We know David is a warrior at heart. He's amped up. He's like, let's roll. They're about to fight the Israelites. More on that in a second. And the other commanders go, hey, wait a minute. That's David. He killed Goliath. Remember him? He's killed thousands, if not tens of thousands of us. How, do we, how can we trust him? In fact, we can't trust him. I'm not going to fight with that guy. David throws a hissy fit and says, I want to fight after Achish said, you're not going to fight. I trust you, but they don't. And what we, eventually David does not participate in the battle. I find two things really, really intriguing here. The first is in verse eight. David responds to Achish and he says, what have I done? I, I've been loyal to you since I entered your service that I may not, and look at this last line, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king. So what we don't know is exactly who David's talking about. Who is his Lord, the king? Is it God? Is it Saul or is it Achish? Who is he really fighting for? None of us really know. To this day, you don't really know. You see, in your struggle, is there, is there a lack of clarity on who your Lord is? Is it God or is it somebody else? Or in your own heart, are you wrestling to figure out who's the boss of my life? Who is in control? Who am I serving? Who am I following in the battle, in the struggle? We need to have clarity. Now, the way that the text is written here is Lord, and we've seen this all throughout 1 Samuel. When it was talking about God, it's capital L-O-R-D. When it's not talking about God, it's lowercase. Here it's lowercase. So most likely David's referring to either Achish or Saul. Either way, he's not referring to God. Who are you turning to? Second thing is this. We just see God's grace all over this. And you're like, where do you see God's grace in this? I don't see it. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes it's really hard to see God's grace in the moment, isn't it? This battle David's about to fight, or the Philistines are about to fight, that David wants to fight in so bad, David has no idea. But they're going to fight the Israelites. Included in that is Saul, David's best friend who he loves more than anybody, Jonathan. And this is the battle, as we will see in two weeks, where Saul dies, Jonathan dies, and all the other brothers die. 
This is the battle that Samuel, when, when Saul summoned him two weeks ago, Samuel said, you're going to die, your sons are going to die, and the whole nation is going to go and be captured by the Philistines. In God's grace, David can't see it in the moment. He fights it in the moment. God preserves David from having to be there when Jonathan is killed. He preserves David. He saves David. from In the moment, David is ticked. He's hot. It doesn't make sense. Why can't I fight? Haven't I done enough to earn your trust by lying and be conniving? He's not saying that, but that's what he's done. And who knows what David would have done in the moment face-to-face with Saul, who he had refused to kill earlier, or face-to-face with Jonathan. Remember, he made a vow to Jonathan that he would never hurt or harm anyone in Jonathan's family. God keeps David from having to break that vow if he went into battle with the Philistines potentially, right? How many times in our life can we look back and say, well, I'm frustrated that I didn't get something that I wanted in the moment, but now I see God's hand of grace in it because he was really saving me, right? He was protecting me. I didn't get the job, but I found out later six months that there was a lot of crazy stuff going on. Praise God, he didn't get, I didn't get the job, right? <laughs> God in his grace saved me even in the moment I was really upset. I didn't get the promotion. I didn't get to go to this next station. I, didn't get, I had to stay when I wanted to go. I had to go when I wanted to stay. But now I look back and I see God's grace. We see God's grace all throughout this. Grace is God's unmerited favor upon David. David did not deserve God's grace, right? He had been living for a year and a half on the run from God, lying, conniving, killing, sinning. But God lavishes grace anyway. This is grace upon grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Jesus and John talks about grace in this way. In John 1.16, he says, and from his fullness, Jesus, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Well, what is his? What is fullness? That word is my, one of my favorites in all the Bible. It's called pleroma. It means that in Jesus, the full totality of God was put on display. The exact character of God is found perfectly in Jesus which is why, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, 2, yeah, Corinthians chapter 120, he says, all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. Amen? For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to the glory of God for his glory. So what is God's grace? And as we take a moment, I want to challenge you in this moment to do this to change your perspective. God's grace does several things. Three, is, three of them are this. God's grace first saves me. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace we have been saved, not by anything we've done through faith. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. God's grace strengthens and God's grace sustains me through the struggle. Paul talks about this struggle in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. How only when we are weak do we fully experience the full strength of God. I have a struggle, Paul says, that I wish God would take away. Three times I asked him, but he refused every time. And now I'm so thankful because in the struggle, I've experienced a greater measure of God's grace. And so now I praise God for the weakness that I have. Because I've experienced the reality that not only does God's grace strengthen me, but it sustains me. And third and finally, God's grace sanctifies me. Paul talks about that in Titus. How through the grace of God, God uses and allows circumstances to grow us to become more like God. And if our end game, if the cry of our heart is, God, one, I want you to glorify yourself, and two, I want to grow to be more like you, I want to grow in spiritual maturity, 
often it's the struggles in our life that God uses to grow us in sanctification. It's actually an answer to prayer, right? We might not see it in the moment, but that's why we need to change our perspective. We need to put gospel lenses on so that when we examine our current struggle, we need to shift our eyes off of the obstacle and onto the overcomer. God, I can't see you here, but I'm going to anchor in the reality through my gospel lens that your word says that there's nowhere that I can go from your spirit, that where I am, there you are also, and that you will never leave me and you will never forsake me. God, help me to see you in this moment. God, the struggle is weird and my heart is broken. God, your word says you draw near to the brokenhearted. Draw near to me, God, in a tangible way because in my broken depravity, I'm going to cry out in dependency and humility. God, I need you. And in that, we get a greater vision and experience of the beauty and the majesty and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. What a gift of God's grace. I can't tell you the number of things in my life that I look back upon and I, won't, I don't want to walk through them again. I don't want to wish them on my worst enemy, but I am thankful for them because I see God's hand all over them, amen? All over them. Growing me, changing me, saving me, refining me, breaking me to the point of utter dependency to get me over my selfish, sinful pride where I want to control, I want to hang on, and breaking me to the beautiful moment where I say, God, all I have is you. And that's enough. Where Paul in a jail cell in Philippians says, I have learned what it's like to be brought high and brought low. God, your strength, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because God's grace strengthens you in the struggle and he changes your perspective off of yourself. God, forgive me for putting you on my timetable. Where in your life have you put God on a clock and God's, your timetable for God has ran out so you're leaving God? God doesn't work on our timetable because at the heart of the anchor of dependency is our surrender to God's sufficiency over and over and over again. God's grace is sufficient for me even when I make a mess. David made a mess in this text. He made a mess. He sinned upon sin upon sin and he experienced grace upon grace upon grace. Praise God, amen. God's grace is sufficient for me even when I don't deserve it. David didn't deserve it, we don't either. But God lavishes his grace upon us. He says, my son, I love you. God's grace is sufficient for me even when I don't like my circumstance. David hated that he couldn't fight. He was like, I was born for this. I was trained for this. Let's go. And God said, no. You understand that we can experience God's grace when he says no. We also experience God's grace when he says yes. God said no to David. I'm not going to give you what you want. I'm not going to tell you why. But God said yes to David. I'm still going to give you grace. I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to care for me. You're not going to understand it. Just like, a father, just like as a dad to my kids, they don't always understand why Anna and I say no to certain things, right? But no is still the best for them, right? We're just kids to God, right? Praise God he doesn't give me everything I want. Because sometimes I need no, even when I want yes. God's grace is sufficient for me even when I don't understand my circumstances. David had no clue. He didn't understand it. Maybe you, don't have, you have circumstances that you don't understand right now. 
Friends, today, will you choose to see God's grace? Will you choose to see it? Life is blurry without lenses, right? Some of you wear glasses, you need to know that. Like, life gets a whole more clear when you put your lenses on, right? Put your gospel grace-filled lenses on. Begin to trust your Savior again. Understand that God is in it to protect you and that his best for you is always his best, even if you don't think it is. That God's no now might be because he has a better yes for you down the road, amen? God is grace. God's grace is sufficient in his no. God's grace is sufficient in his yes. God's grace is sufficient in his not yet. Choose to partake in God's grace. If you've never experienced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never chosen that to make that the question, do it today. Experience his grace. It will save you. It will provide you hope even if your external situations don't change. Choose to trust in God's grace that is sufficient to carry you through the struggle that you're walking through right now. The struggle might endure for the rest of your life, but God's grace is sufficient, amen? It's sufficient. He will never give you anything greater than you could. Like 2 Corinthians 10, he'll always allow you to stand up under it. He will allow certain situations in your life to crush you, right? Out of his grace. But then his grace will carry you. It will stand up for you. Choose to praise God for his grace. Because your love is better than life, my lips will choose to praise you. That stands true, David's words. If you're wrestling with this, how do I do this? Read Psalm 13 this week. It's a lament. David wrote it. For the first four or five verses, he's like, God, where are you? And in the last two verses, he's like, I choose to trust you. Open your heart to God about the struggle, but then declare to God your surrender and lean on God for his sufficiency. It's always enough, amen? Father, we just thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for your mercy and your love. I thank you that there are things in this life that break us. Because in our brokenness, you want us to see your beauty. That as you allow the world to crush us and the fallen depravity to, to just shatter around us, that you uphold us, that you carry us, that you mold us and that you transform us, that you make us because you are in it all and you are over it all. And that as Paul writes in, in that Corinthians passage, that even when we are broken by our circumstances and our trials and our tribulations, you always allow us a situation to stand up under. It doesn't, sometimes it's a limp or a stagger, but you hold us and you carry us. You walk with us and you show us the reality that your grace saves, your grace is always sufficient, your grace strengthens us and your grace sanctifies. Praise you for that. Praise you for the struggle, God. Because you're in the struggle, you're over the struggle, and you will see us through the struggle. God, for my friends that are struggling this morning, God, I just pray that you would meet them. Help us to stop running from the struggle and start turning to you in the struggle. God, your love really is better than life. Help us to value your love more than we value our life. Help us to value your love to focus on eternity as we live carried by your love 
and as we live to carry your love and to share it and to point other people to your love today and in all the days to come. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.